This week's episode is brought to you by Charleston Beer Works, the sponsor of the 2018 Post and Courier Hoops Frenzy Contest. Visit postandcourier.com slash hoopsfrenzy2018 by March 15th, and you'll be entered to win a number of prizes, including cash, a new TV, or grill. Again, that's postandcourier.com slash hoopsfrenzy2018. Deadline to play is March 15th. Join us at Charleston Beer Works for $10 Bud Light pitchers all day from Thursday to Sunday. Welcome to the Winnow, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at the Post and Courier. Today we're doing sort of the odds and ends edition of uh, the Winnow. You know, the wake of the Wine and Food Festival and everything behind us, the spring's coming up. Just a time to look back at some of the things we've been reading and writing about recently. We'll talk about pastrami and barbecue and we'll talk about chairs and some other items. But first, we did want to follow up on a previous episode. I think two episodes ago, Hannah and I, uh, rapsed eloquently <laughs> or we eloquently uh, discussed the Charleston waffle, uh, the great joke of the early 20th century that no no one really understands. And now we, I had turned up a, a recipe for that. And then we understand you actually took that recipe. I, I've been meaning to do it, but uh, got a little tied up and just never got to, around to cooking it. But Emory, you did cook it, is that right? Yeah, I did. Um, so I've got a group of friends who um, we have kind of the standing Sunday night dinner tradition. We decided this week we wanted to make breakfast for dinner, and I mentioned that's a whole other topic. But, uh, <laughs> whole other topic, but um, I hate breakfast. Oh, really? oh my God. Well, we may have to get <laughs> do tour into that. Hot take. Um, <laughs> so the Charleston waffle was on my mind, and I mentioned that, and uh, everybody was fascinated, very intrigued, and so we decided we were gonna make it. I got the recipe from y'all, and uh, we secured the ingredients, and we got to work. Uh, now, remind us, Emery, what did the recipe call for? Okay, so the recipe calls for, I, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I believe the recipe calls for a pint of flour, a pint of sour cream, a small amount of baking soda. We'll, we'll post this recipe online um, so you can find it later. Yep, so I just pulled it up. It's uh, one pint of flour, one pint of sour cream, three eggs— and one-half teaspoon of soda, right. which would be baking soda. Right. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, so that is a lot of sour cream. That was everybody's initial reaction. <laughs> um, so, so is it, I mean, is it sludge-like when you've mixed the batter? Or is so it... It, it asks you to make two different mixtures at first. It, it asks you to uh, combine the baking soda and the flour and then to mix the eggs and the sour cream separately. Wet and dry. Yeah, and then to combine them later. Um, and I will note that it does say salted flour later. So like many recipes of the year, it forgets to put that in the ingredient the list. Right, but right. Salt. <laughs> right. And, and so that that's that's a question is exactly how much salt to, to taste, I suppose. It, it An interesting thing about it is that the resulting mixture is very thick. Um, it starts off very thick and then you – well, so you, you beat the eggs into the flour and it becomes very thick. And then you mix the, the sour cream – with the the flour and then you get this very lumpy mixture and, and we were very unsure how much to beat it you know do we want to get rid of all the lumps a lot of waffle recipes tell you not to overbeat it yep. um so we were concerned about that 
And, and may I ask, I think we talked about this briefly before you at the outside of your experiment experiment, but did you try and stay true to the um, the tools of the time or were you putting this like in like a stand mixer? Uh, no, we were mixing it by hand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, in, in plastic bowls, though. So. <laughs> and I imagine you didn't crank up. You've, you never discovered an old far, uh, waffle iron. You had to use it. No, we did not. My, my friend uh, has a, a kind of a high-end electric one, so it does allow you to crank the temperature up all the way. So we did that. Um, hopefully that was hot enough. Uh, we did run into a bit of a, a hiccup, I suppose, when my friend kind of, I think, put too much batter in the iron itself. <laughs> Which was kind of difficult not to do, considering just how thick this this mixture actually was. Uh, so what we ended up making was was a very thick waffle. You know, we were kind of debating, like, actually, how thick should this resulting waffle end up being? Because it, you know, it mentions that it should have a crispness to it. You know, we were not really sure what the like German influence might be. We we kind of had some some knowledge of like what Dutch waffles are like, and we thought, well, those are like very, very, very thin, thin and crisp. Um, but in, anyway, what we ended up making was a lot thicker, much more like a Belgian, Belgian waffle, waffle that you that you might be familiar with. But uh, it does have a very, very crisp crust, and it has a very, very savory texture that we were not expecting. Did you try patching any tires with it? Uh, we did not. <laughs> uh, I, I, no, I, I, I mean... Honestly, it was not that shocking to me. Like it was, it was a waffle. You know, I yeah. mean, it, it had it had a very savory and rich texture to it and flavor. Uh, I definitely see how it would go well with like a meat entree. Um, but you know, it was also, and one of my friends did not like it. He he said the the um, crust had had this like kind of nutty flavor to it. It, it was um, very well done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that was cut really nicely with like some preserves or some syrup or something. I mean, it was it was a good waffle, but it wasn't like a game changing waffle. I'm not I'm not totally sure. I think maybe if we if we made it again and made it like extremely thin. That's, was it one of those waffle irons that's already sort of Belgian? Infl- you know, a lot of those waffle irons. Right. Have yeah. Kind yeah. Of I, I think I think it's kind of it, so it wasn't it wasn't a super, super deep waffle mm-hmm. iron, but um. Yeah, I think it would have been difficult to avoid making like a thick waffle with it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm just not totally sure like what the waffle irons of the time would have looked like. What it, what a German Charleston waffle iron would have looked like. Right, and I will. I tried to track us down a waffle iron we could use. I, I asked the folks at Middleton <laughs> Place who were you know if they just happen to have a material culture co- a collection with a, a waffle iron nope. they weren't needing, but unfortunately they did not. So, but if any listeners happen to yes, have, if you have uh, an old waffle iron, you know, a 1908 a waffle iron, uh, I'd love to try this again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it's definitely fun, and it's got a a fun story. Well. It, Tinged with racism, of course, <laughs> as all things are. So that part is not fun. Uh, the, the the recipe has a very unfortunate line yes. in it, but uh, it, you know. It, but it does have this fun backstory, and it, it was it was a fun experiment to to take. And we'll post this recipe online. So I, you know, I encourage everybody to go out there and, and experiment with this. No, I think as you may recall, we talked about in the last time that in uh, later coverage of the Charleston waffle, when the restaurant opened in Manhattan, there was discussion about mixing it in a yellow bowl. Did you, in fact, do that? It was in a green bowl. Down. Wow. Yeah. So that, I mean, that may explain it all. Yeah, right? that, that, that might, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's totally invalidates the entire mm-hmm. experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you so much for trying it. Mm-hmm. I did, uh, I have spent, since we have talked about the Charleston Waffle, I mean, what's great about history is it's kind of open source. Mm-hmm. And I have been talking to so many of these people who are about to open breakfast restaurants <laughs> saying, I got the thing for you. So I'm hoping we will see this uh, on a restaurant menu sometime soon. Yeah, and really, you don't have to necessarily, that's just one recipe, right? You could, you don't necessarily have to go with that, that recipe. 
philosophy. Right. You know, there may be, be another one out yeah. there. I mean, that's right. That's the thing with history is just because you find one thing doesn't mean there's yeah. not something else left to find. So I'll dig in and see and see if we can find some more Charleston waffle recipes out there. Well, related, to, not actually not related to to the Charleston waffle, but in a, a similar vein of uh, digging into food in history. Uh, <laughs> I think this this discussion was a little bit sparked by a recent tweet a couple of weeks ago that made quite a stir about what was it? Uh, help me out! The Brooklyn barbecue. And, uh, and if I understand it, I mean this this blew up so fast. Yeah. After about the first twenty minutes, I totally blocked it out. So was the complaint about this that they're making barbecue in Brooklyn, or just that that photograph was so pathetic? No, the article itself. <laughs> um, and I, I may have to click click through and <laughs> refresh my memory in the article because it was actually uh, a tweet from an article mm-hmm. uh, that was about Brooklyn barbecue and how it is the type style of barbecue that people eat in Brooklyn is now moving overseas and inspiring all these restaurateurs in Europe to o- open barbecue joints because they came to the U.S., went to a bunch of Brooklyn barbecue joints and then ended up. Uh, eating overseas, so so as opposed to like going to you know the, the great North Carolina joints or down to Texas or something like that. That's a defensible theory. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But the, but it took a lot of heat, right? Because the picture was so pathetic. Well, that's what I mean. Like anything, you don't really have to click through the article to actually read what anything's about to to judge by the picture because uh, mm-hmm. the picture of that's uh, <laughs> it. I got pulled up because there's no other way to. Yeah. To, so the the tweet the tweet was from it. was from the property Munchies, which is yep. Voc, yep. basically has Vice's version of Eater. Right. Um, the tweet just says, why is Brooklyn barbecue taking over the world? And then it has just the most unfortunate <laughs> photograph I mean, of a plate of like brisket you could it, possibly imagine with I, beer in a mason jar. And I guess it's brisket. It's like these two pallid pieces really, of really, like yeah, just London like, broil kind of thing. Yeah, well, like, not, only, not only that, it's like, you know, it's the tray. Like they have yeah. the now iconic silver tray with... Uh, or aluminum tray with uh, with brown butcher brown paper, paper on it, but rather than loaded up with mounds and mounds of meat, there's like three little pathetic slices of brisket mm-hmm. and a little dark beer over in the corner right. and a couple of pickles. Uh, my, my favorite my favorite parody of it I saw was um, somebody posted a, a picture of a bowl of spaghettios and captioned it, "Why is Atlanta's Italian food taking <laughs> over the world?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that that gives you a, a sense of what the outrage right. was. I think. <laughs> Yeah, I did have to pull it up to look at it. Yeah, I forgot. There, there is a little tray with two sad-looking pickles, a little sla- sad pile of brisket, and then two dinner rolls on the, the tray oh, yeah, as the, well. The dinner so, rolls, no no part of yeah. this looks good. No, no, <laughs> no. no it's just not, not a good picture uh, right. at all. But if you do click through on the actual article and read it, it, it isn't saying that this is like – this great Brooklyn barbecue that's taking over the world. It's talking about how all you know people overseas have been inspired by Brooklyn barbecue. And there are lots of different other pictures in the article that aren't nearly so pathetic that they could have chosen, but oh well. Mm-hmm. That that one choice has uh, blown it up. Anyhow, so that just got you thinking, I think, because I know recently you've been writing about what you might call a more authentic form of right. Brooklyn barbecue. Right, so I had been writing prior to that photo going viral, um, writing about the, it, it, I mean, sort of the inverse of that story is the surge of pastrami in the South. Um at least here in Charleston, it has that has become sort of it's like the pickle of 2018. Like you mm-hmm. got to make this yourself. You're not going to buy the pastrami. I I knew that it had like we're at peak pastrami when I was out <laughs> at Dockery's, which is this new massive like mega entertainment complex on Daniel Island. Um, 
and they're touting their house-made pastrami. Um, so pastrami is where it's at. And it's in there. Of course, the reason I bring this up is it is, again, a smoke cured meat that belongs to Brooklyn. So actually, Brooklyn does have um, and not to say it was originally in Brooklyn uh, per se, but really the Lower East Side, the Lower of, East side of, excuse of New York. Me, yes, but it certainly is a native bridge, to New York. You know, yeah. everyone went over there. So, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so it's it's native to New York. So there is a tradition um, which is very very similar, um, and now it's come here. And it was really it was interesting to me trying to investigate why so much pastrami all of a sudden. And I think one of the best answers I got was from Josh Keeler at Four Ninety Two, who was previously the chef owner mm-hmm. of Two Burrows Larder. He used to make pastrami there, so he was ahead of the curve. But he couldn't sell it if he called it pastrami. He had to call it smoked brisket. Really? Yeah. People would only buy brisket. They didn't want pastrami. Now, once John Lewis got here, the, the mm-hmm. Texas pitmaster, and started making briskets, like, <laughs> I couldn't get away with that much longer. <laughs> People understood what brisket was. So that, that that's part of the reason. Um, but, it's, you know, why people weren't into pastrami then, I can't say. But what I can say now is the northern population in Charleston is leaps yeah. and bounds. And so when I spoke to the chef owner of the Shellmore, which is a terrific little place over in Ion, which is a small neighborhood in Mount Pleasant, across our bridge, mm-hmm. kind of similar to the, the Lower East Side uh, Brooklyn thing. Uh, so over at the Shellmore, he said, you know, the first person that came in said, my God, you know, I used to eat every week at Katz's and, <laughs> and this is better. You know, and so, so there is a new point of reference. For better pastrami. than Katz's. Better than that's, Katz's. That's saying something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Katz's I, Deli, I, the legendary pastrami uh, house in, in, uh, on the Lower East Side of Brooklyn. Exactly. Or Lower East Side of Manhattan. Lower East Side of Manhattan. Emery, it looks like you have something to say. Hannah, can I throw something random at you? Yeah, sure. Okay, so are you familiar with the show called The Marvelous Miss Maisel? I adore that show. Really? Okay, I, so I binged it. Amazing. Okay, so, so this, uh, and okay. I have no idea what it is, yeah. so clue me. All right, all right. So, so it, is, it is an Amazon original show. Um, I've likened it to uh, sort of 50s version of it, – it's very similar to like Mad Men, except mm-hmm. it's more of a comedy – and it takes place in the 50s, and it centers on this Jewish family um, and the titular Miss Maisel and her— Miss Maisel. Oh, Miss Maisel. Miss <laughs> Maisel. Sorry. I think so. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, yeah. Uh, it centers on her struggle with her marriage and becoming a stand-up comedian. Now I'm like, Maisel, 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 Maisel. Okay, yeah, sorry. Now, now, I'm, <laughs> now I'm, I'm, I'm confused. All, I'm all, I don't know. I'm I don't. worried. Yeah. Uh, anyway, what I wanted to throw out— out at you is that um so she's she makes brisket a lot yes in the show um and i had not actually in my head ever made the connection between like brisket and pastrami and like jewish culture and can you can you enlighten me on like what that is and- yeah well i mean i can tell you i mean brisket is one of the leading ashkenazi sh- foods which is of course the jews who immigrated from eastern europe or ashkenazi mm-hmm. um Brisket is at every Jewish holiday, but in terms of how pastrami came here from Romania, uh, I'm going to turn that over to Robert Moss. <laughs> yeah, I've actually yeah dug into that one a, a good bit. Um, you know, pastrami is actually a variant of a of a cured meat that is was originally from Romania, but then spread all around the Mediterranean. It's called pasturma and other things, and it's you know it, it is sort of 
if you think like bresciola or some kind of cured meat, it's, it's a lot like that. It's, it's um, a preservation technique. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of pre- yep. preserving things yep. with, I think, salt and brine, and, and then dr- it, it's really a dried meat uh, mm-hmm. in, in most parts of it, of it, that, uh, of, of the Mediterranean. But just, to, again, what makes pastrami special is it's not just salt. It's some of those, the right. season, you know, it, the it, garlic. It, and yeah. that, so it's very redolent of all of those things that, that a Jewish household should smell like, right? So And yeah. it did come to New York City with a lot of the, the Eastern, uh, Eastern European Jews who, who immigrated in the really 1880s, 1890s, and you start seeing pasterma pop up in various places in, in New York. And it evolved over time to pastrami. Uh, it was, you see various spellings early on, like pastroma, pastromer, pastrami, but it ultimately became pastrami. But that yeah, definitely the, the New York variety differs, and it's not just a preserved or dried beef. It's, it's pickled. It's got a brine, and it's, it's pickled and cured and then smoked, um, sort of a, a, a dual version. You know, brisket uh, being obviously, uh, it's beef, so it can, it's kosher. Um, so that's one reason for it being part of Jewish culture. Also, brisket, is a, it was a very inexpensive cut of meat. Um, you have to cook brisket Low and slow, uh, like they do in the barbecue world, uh, but the same way if you're gonna cook, you know, cook it in either in liquid or just cook it in the oven. So it's it's one of those uh, long cut, cuts that benefits from a long slow slow cooking. So just cooking a brisket was a big, uh, you know, special occasion meal, and then obviously pastrami a form of cured brisket that sort of evolved out of them. And so you can get, you can often get a brisket sandwich in a deli, mm-hmm. but the the one distinction that's important is pastrami is really a deli food. And the deli is not, it's not a replica of anything that existed in the old world. It's very much like a, a soul food restaurant yep. in this country. It's sort of like greatest hits and a little bit adapted and evolved and celebratory foods. So that's, that's where you get pastrami. Briskets for at home for the most part. Mm, yeah. Yeah, then the the deli is really a delicatessen. It was a delicacies shop, uh, sort of along the line of the appetizing shops. You would get all sort there. You would get all sorts of um, you know tinned fish and imported uh, treats, uh, as well as you know house cured sausages, house cured meats, and and so it was definitely where you went to grab something for a special occasion, not a what your corner grocery store by any by any means. Right. No, I mean, deli, with that deli is a whole other topic, yep. but it does emerge as this third place for, for, for mm-hmm. Jews to uh, to congregate and, and eat pastrami. Yep. I'm glad you like mm-hmm. Mrs. Meisel or Mrs. Yeah. Meisel. My fa- my, the <laughs> best line in that show is uh, when, when, there are, when she's arguing with her father and her father's like, do you remember the most important thing I told you when, to when, when you went to college? And she's like, that was about deli. And like, no, I meant the other most important thing. That was also about deli. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyhow, so yeah. this is so this is how pastrami comes here. So, so there is a new northern mm-hmm. affection. But so here's the, the interesting part. This is where I thought Keeler was really on to something. Um, is he's like basically Charleston's sick of bacon. And Oh, pastrami- okay, you're right. So yeah, we it's we had pickling and bacon mania all around the same time. Exactly right. And so he's like, I can't, and, and, and Keeler has been, you know, I don't want to use the word notorious, but if you wanted some bacon, you could get it yeah. at Two Burrows Larder. <laughs> I mean, he was pretty good at putting pork all over things. Anyone who's familiar with his noodle soup or ramen version uh, sure was porky. Uh, and so Keeler is like, Enough already. I need something else that's salty, that's just like, you know, puts that. Salty, smoky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got like a kosher bako, essentially. Like, they're throwing pastrami on everything now. And so all around town, it is now making those cameo appearances that Bacon once did. Now, I first noticed pastrami coming in not 
in the Carolinas, but down in Texas, where a lot of the the brisket guys, like John Lewis, went back right. when he was there. But then a lot of them started realizing, I've got all this really fine, you know, prime brisket that I'm making. Why don't I try a little pastrami cure on it? And so they started making uh, pastrami at their, on, their, on their smokers, and they became a huge hit out there as yeah, well. Yeah, I feel like I, may, I think you've made me written about, I think our mutual friend Jim Shaheen has written mm-hmm. about that the pastrami had a moment in, in barbecue like two, three years yeah. ago, right? It was sort of, it was pastrami. In, in fact, I remember coming across your story. You were just seeing more pastrami and more pits. Um, but now, as I say, it seems to have entered the high-end restaurant space um, in a way it hadn't previously. So, you know, at, 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 you're seeing pastrami in, uh, in soufflés and pastrami <laughs> in salads. And it's like, again, anywhere they're needing just that little, like, punch of funk, they're going for pastrami. That is so, <laughs> it's a way. I, many moons ago, I, I don't remember if I told the story the last time we talked about pastrami, but if I did, it was two years ago. So we'll we'll tell it again. Um, I worked at a Subway sandwich shop when I was in uh, college uh, up, up in Greenville, uh, South Carolina. And the corporate entity that owned Subway is all franchisees. They would run these specials and you'd have to sort of run whatever this sandwich special was. And one time they had this great idea to make pastrami be the special sandwich of the month. And right. so they shipped like this massive bag of frozen pastrami to Greenville, South Carolina, where I think maybe three people ordered it over the course of the month. And most people are like, what? They don't even know what it, what it was. I happened to like it. So at the end of the, when the special ended up <laughs> running, I got to take home the bag of pastrami that was left over. The, the owner let me take it and put it in my freezer. And uh, my, my friends and I ate pastrami sandwiches like every night for, you know, three months because uh, it was a heck of a lot of pastrami. But nobody in Greenville, South Carolina had ever heard of that. Everybody came out, what is pastrami? Right. I, and- I don't and so in that way, it diverges totally from bacon, which has, yep. you know, oh, everyone long, knows what bacon is. Right, right. I mean, that, that's that been an American tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years. Pastrami really has been very geographically uh, limited the up until this Fun fact point. on bacon that I didn't really know until, until recently. Um, in the 19th century, bacon wasn't what we think of bacon as. Mm-hmm. Bacon was basically a term— a generic term for smoked pork. Mm-hmm. And so I was found all these ads for Charleston uh, <laughs> grocers in like the 1850s that would have, the heading would be bacon, and then underneath it you would see bellies, what shoulders. What kind of bacon? You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was all that. And it's only really toward the turn of the 20th century that bacon became what we think of as, which is specifically the uh, cured and smoked pork belly. Right. And interestingly, and, and correct me if your research shows otherwise, it seems like pastrami is actually widening, that it used to have to be navel uh, that you used. And now it seems like eh, as long as the brisket, as long as the lard, it used to, I feel like, be a smaller part of the cow that was uh, legitimate. Yeah, I don't pastrami. know exactly when that happened, but I think no. you're right. But originally pastrami, pastromer was not just uh, brisket. It, mm-hmm. it was different types, cuts of meat that could be prepared in that style. Right. But then it became just the brisket and then right. the belly. But even just, I mean, yep. even smaller than that, you know, it was like it had to be navel. Yep. And now it seems like as long as it comes from the cow and you treat it that <laughs> way, you can call it a pastrami. Yeah, truly. I mean, you can do a pastrami treatment to mm-hmm. anything. So you it's often sure. will see pastrami duck, yeah. pastrami style duck, yep. uh, which is a duck that's cured and then smoked uh, with, you know, cured with pastrami spices. The spices, right. Yep. You see pastrami lox if mm-hmm. you want to go Full Jew, you see. I mean, you've seen, you've seen a lot of that lately. Uh, yeah, it's and I, I, I'm 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 pro. I think you know pastrami is delicious. Well, it's definitely now hitting southern menus with a vengeance. So we'll see. It's a 
Pastrami is the new bacon. I it like was it. amazing. I counted it up because um, the paper here is thinking of doing a, a pastrami bracket. And just go, I was able to come up with almost two dozen restaurants so you, now. Oh, wow. I, was about, I, was about, I wouldn't have thought there was enough no. pastrami to do a, 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 a head-to-head I know. Bracket. I thought the bracket was just going to have one side. Yeah, you can't really have like, <laughs> like, like, yeah, four, yeah, yeah. four exactly. game bracket. eight places. <laughs> no, this is – I mean, if they go through with it, we got a, we got a lot of places. Transitioning from pastrami, if you're going to eat a pastrami sandwich in one of, like, apparently two dozen <laughs> Charleston restaurants. You got to sit down. Yeah, you, you, you need to sit down to do it. I guess you could eat one at the counter, but, you know, probably enjoy They're, it. They tend to be overstuffed and messy. That's true. It'll be messy. You, you should be sitting down. I <laughs> recently did an article, um, which which I just saw not too long ago, uh, about chairs in restaurants. And it's one of those things that <laughs> I hadn't really thought that much about chairs. Now, I do think about chairs in restaurants in the sense of the really uncomfortable ones. And I often will find myself thinking, why on the earth does this restaurateur have this chair? And then I read your article and I realized, maybe I can sort of see how some of these very lightweight, uncomfortable chairs come to be. I didn't realize, I think the surprising thing from from the piece for me was that the typical restaurant chair costs like $500, which is a pretty steep chair. And if you start counting the seats in a restaurant, you realize that's a significant capital investment to right. open a restaurant. Right. I mean, even if you're talking about a tiny restaurant, yeah. you're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands, you know, thousands of dollars. Thousands, it's yeah. a, a huge investment. And what had gotten me interested in it is, is exactly as you say, people complain when their chairs aren't comfortable. And, you know, I think, in fact, it's one of the things people say when it's not quite what they mean. Like, you know how a kid is like, I have a stomach ache, but really they mean like, <laughs> I'm afraid of that kid. You know, yeah. it's like, I think it's the same thing with diners. They say like, and the chair was so uncomfortable, but really it's not that the chair was uncomfortable. You were just in such a bad mood because service was terrible and the food wasn't good. And it often gets pinned on the chair because people don't know what else to say. Um, So I hear a lot about chairs is what it comes down to. And I think some of them are probably deserving of the criticism. Some are not. But as you say, I was able to delve into why do restaurants have the chairs that they do? I will say this is a very polarizing article. Some Mm -hmm. people are like, I've been waiting my whole life for this. And some people are ready to cancel their subscription over it. They're like... how did you? What did they get upset about? What, and they they you, said this is not important. This is trivial. Oh. They said this is trivial. Well, this like, maybe just speaks to my mind because yeah. this, this type of minutia is like the most I, interesting part the of the rest best. of the world. <laughs> it's the best part. Um, right. So price is a big thing, and so every restaurateur at the outset has to make a decision: how much are they well, going to invest? Well, you can see invest? why. If you go between the five hundred dollar chair or the three hundred dollar chair, you're talking about thousands upon thousands of dollars of expense that you could, in, in theory, save. Right. Uh, and so it's not uncommon for a first-time restaurateur to say, like, I'll just go to Ikea. <laughs> and, you know, and the thing is, as 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 uh, Betsy Berry, one of the designers quoted in the piece, said, she's like, but you can't, you know, commercial use of a chair is, she says she likened it to, like, buying a ceiling fan mm-hmm. in South Carolina where they're like, oh, that's going to last you 10 years. And she says, well, it's in Charleston. They're like... Give it a year. You know, it's like these things have so much wear and tear. Um, Additionally, this is, I mean, this is why restaurants are fascinating. There's also the legal aspect of it that that chair could collapse. Yeah, that's what I saw that. I didn't realize that you could conceivably be held liable for if you use a substandard non-restaurant quality chair. That's right. Yep. Yep. So you don't want people falling out of their chairs. Um, (laughs) Additionally, I mean, and this is was kind of the crux of the piece, people have to fit in your chairs. Um, so a chair that looks great, it may not be one that actually fits different body types. Um, again, the opening kind of anecdote I used in that piece was a chair that felt great to Betsy, who I think she's sized much like I am. You know, she's like five feet tall. 
I'm not five feet tall, but they can't see me. I'm almost five <laughs> feet tall, five feet tall and small. And she thought the chair was terrific. Um, and then her husband, who is six feet tall, uh, Chef Robert Berry, who well, local listeners may be familiar with, you know, I think he tried out. He's like, this doesn't work at all. <laughs> this is a horrible chair. Um, so, yeah. So you have to figure out who's going to be sitting in that. Well, that's the thing, though. We have, you have to have chairs for all your customers, you know, which is going to, the, the range of sizes is going to be quite remarkable, including children all the way up to yeah, the, gigantic it, six, you know, seven right. foot tall. And you kind of need to plan on the bigger side. You know, as I talked to uh, Brooks Wrights, who we've had on the show before, who has a number of restaurants. And, you know, he really likes to buy vintage um, because that's sort of the mood of his places, which makes sense. Um, he also believes he's getting, you know, more bang for his buck because the older chairs were made with better materials. Um, but, you know, what he found in some cases is these chairs were built for a time when Americans didn't weigh as much. Yeah. And so chairs that he had initially purchased for Leon's um, are now all have all been retired. Well, yeah. If you look at some of those old restaurant chairs, especially the ones with the, I don't know what you call them, the cane back or the, the ones mm-hmm. with the, the real thin yep. uh, backs, and you go to older restaurants that have them, they may be 30 years old, and you feel like they're about to collapse yes. under you at any, any second now. Right. And you do realize that, yeah, that's – People are definitely a lot larger <laughs> than they they were, you know, 30, 40 years ago when the right, right, right. Made. And then there's a whole other thing about chair height. I mean, all these guys they talk, they're, like, they're like, you'll have to do a sequel on bar stools. That's so like a whole separate thing about you know, does the stool have a back? How tall is it? And you have to position it exactly right so that where people are sitting, if you have people who aren't saying like, what are they eye level with? Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of height. Additionally. Can you reach the bar? You know, there are still bars or restaurants or restaurants alike. I, there are still restaurants where I have to sit on my knees in order to reach the table, which is a very, <laughs> yeah, that's not I feel a, very sophisticated yes, when I do that. Not but a, not, It's not comfortable. Yeah, but that's, yep. that's, that's, that's true. Bars, especially those, um, the high tops and sort of the, the right. community table sitting in bars, there are all sorts of ranges of sizes and, and, and levels there that, that, can, that range from, I, I barely even notice it, I'm just having a good time to, I, I feel like. I'm a child with my you know, reaching way up high over my head to reach the table. It's a, right. I think it's a hard thing to get right. And the consensus seems to be that if there is going to be a trend in chairs now, it's going to be like the big overstuffed chair. It sounds like if, if restaurateurs can afford it, um, they are now going away from whenever the chair equivalent of the Edison bulb was, and they are going toward <laughs> – Chairs with armrests, which is um, that that's definitely going to be a change. Uh, chairs with armrests, chairs with backs. Um, yeah, which I get. You mean like padded backs. Padded backs, yeah, right, not, not right, right. Backs. Which, and then, I mean, we didn't even get into this, but then you get into more of an upkeep issue. You know, I mean, you've got well, to you be like think dust that, busting under yeah, your cushions. Anything with cushions on it uh, or upholstery on it is just going to be a cleaning nightmare exactly. as opposed to just wiping it off with a rag. Right. You know, with sort of those solid wooden chairs that you, you think of as a restaurant staple. Yep. Hmm. Curious about the one thing I've noticed. This is not related to chairs, but I'm thinking about people's we talk, you know getting bigger. But I think people are also getting taller in general, so that's <laughs> going to change your your height. One thing I notice in hotels all the time these days is that uh, if you go into an older hotel, maybe one that's 15, 20 years old and hadn't really been refurbished, how much lower the bathroom counters are. Mm, They're several inches lower than the newer hotels. Well, and And there's almost no space on those old sinks because I think it was all like men, business traveler, you know, and so it's like they didn't need to put their lipstick anywhere. They put their safety razor next to the (laughs) sink and they were were good. But I I do think also just in general people are taller because you'll notice that now it's odd for me to go into a a bathroom and like the sink – what it's you know, in the upper mm-hmm. thighs, they, but they you feel so low when you're right. one of these old older places, and, right? Uh, because the newer ones, they, it's, 
every, several inches every you know every decade, I guess. We're, yeah, we've gone up. So I guess chairs and bar stools are probably the same way. Right. And because they are expensive, people try and keep them for a long mm-hmm. time. You know, as I said in the story that, you know, the the Swamp Fox at the, uh, the Francis Marion Hotel is about to replace their chairs, which are older than some of their staff members. <laughs> I think they're amazing. Arkansas 1994. Yeah. So 94. these are over 20 years old. I mean, yeah. Almost 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 a quarter 30, century yeah. old. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that'll be third. Right. Yeah, over 20, yep. 25 years. Yep. So but while we're I mean, while we're on on that topic, because I, I I would be curious to know in your your research, what have you found? So, so it sounds I know one of the trends you say it's going back to upholstered chairs because right. we've had so many experiments, I felt lately with odd chairs, which are like those chairs that have a back that's only about six inches tall. Sometimes they're at bars, <laughs> oh, but yeah. oftentimes they're, they're at tables. We've had tables that are high, high tops. We've tended to have, uh, you know, alongside the, the, uh, all the, the, the pickling and tattoos, those like real lightweight metal yes. And also the plastic. We and, got to and, see a lot more with the whole fast casual rise. Oh, yeah. That, you know, like that gray plastic the, Yeah, that sort of molded plastic. Yeah, it's all exactly. one piece. And, yep. and I, I find those to be grossly uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Uh, sounds like people are moving away from those, that, that kind of sort of minimalist, sparse chairs I think is on the way so. out. I think so, and I think it's, I mean, it's interesting. It, this is uh, a form follows fashion mm-hmm. sort of thing um, because you have to think about how long the person's going to be in the chair, right? And so if there is a return to more luxurious dining, mm-hmm. and, you know, people are doing more, you know, more courses and they're kind of saying, like, that's a very different chair than you need if someone's just having a taco and yeah. getting out, so... Yeah, so, so the menu in some ways determines the chair, although the chair has to last for 30 years, so you're kind of screwed either <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, you, really, you, you sort of pick your chair and stick with it, right? Yeah. Yep. All right, well, well, I'll be curious to see. how Now I'll be paying a lot I, more attention to I mean, chairs that's the great everywhere thing is, I go. Is now you kind of pay attention yep. to and see, you know, this the the whole thing and how the – what I what David Thompson, the, the local restaurant architect, has said to me is it just restaurateurs are starting to pay more attention. So I, I think we should too. It's fun. all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the sit-down podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building. The chairs building. actually are fairly comfortable They have here. armrests yeah, and a back. And, they're, and, and they never, are upholstered. And they're upholstered. I've never fallen out of this never. chair either, which is more than I can say for some <laughs> bar stools. Um... Where are we? We're in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. (laughs) If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of The Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the Charleston waffle-making, J.M. Marie Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat.